Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Verse number 19. Amen. I have much to pray about, folks, with all uh, the sickness that is going on and, and such. So uh, you shouldn't be grappling for something to pray about. Amen. The next few days. So continue to remember all these needs today. The Bible says in verse number 19. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer. And the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. This next verse is a very popular phrase of the Apostle Paul. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose I want not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. For a little while this morning, again, this is our Philippians series. I want to talk to us today about reasons to rejoice. Reasons to rejoice. Amen. God, we come to you this morning. We're so grateful. I pray, Jesus, today that your word would find, Lord, a place in our lives and in our hearts. Help us, God, to see ourselves, Lord, in your word. God, give us reasons, Lord, for rejoicing today. Open our minds and our understanding, God, to receive what the word of the Lord says, God, for us individually and collectively. God, this morning, we'll not fail to thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you do and accomplish here today. And we'll give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated this morning in Jesus' name. We must agree today that the Apostle Paul, and we've looked at this for a few Sundays, but the Apostle Paul has perhaps one of the best attitudes considering what he has faced or is facing in the book of Philippians. He is imprisoned at this moment of time. He has already faced a multitude of things in his life of, of shipwreck and other imprisonments, yet he seems to have, uh, I would say, a, a model attitude to follow the apostle paul is he speaks in the scripture here that he is confident that his defense of the gospel has in some way or fashion placed him in prison and it has going to bat for the gospel going to bat if you want to call it that for the lord has placed him in prison but paul's perspective is just unlike any other it's like I, I went to bat for the Lord that placed me in prison just so I could confirm the gospel to other people that I otherwise might not have came in contact with had it not been for this imprisonment. That is a great attitude to have being in prison, thinking of it not as a threat or a woe is me, but as an opportunity to still yet share the gospel. And he says it wouldn't have happened had it not been for my imprisonment. He knew firsthand how things along these types of lines could be used for the gospel's sake and for the good of the Lord. Similarly, he could think of his own life because Paul wasn't always the apostle. Paul wasn't always the one that was touting the message of Jesus here and there. Uh, he also, at one time, when he was under the name of Saul, was the persecutor of the church. He was the persecutor of the church that during the book of Acts, many of them faced, uh, if you will, the persecution of Saul. Amen. And we understand that he was converted from Saul to Paul. 
But he knows, Paul knows, that when he was Saul and he persecuted the church, that his persecution, something that was very negative, something that was very bad, also had a positive effect upon the disciples and upon the, on the, on the, the, the word of the Lord being spread. That God used something that was negative and bad and used it for his good because whenever Saul was the persecutor, it caused, the persecution caused, an expansion of the gospel. The Bible says, Acts 8 and verse number 1, and Saul, the one that we know to be Paul here in the book of Philippians, and Saul was consenting unto his death, speaking of Stephen's death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. In other words, there's a scattering of people to regions, areas, and cities they otherwise may not have gone had it not been for the persecution. And so Paul can reflect back on how his own persecution helped some things spread concerning the gospel. And now he can consider the persecution he's receiving can also be used, if you will, for the spreading of the gospel. So Paul knows this, that if God could use persecution that he was the originator of to spread it, then God can use the persecution that he's the target of also to spread the gospel. And so Paul can see that he that began, and this is in Philippians 1, that he that began a good work in him, it's going to be performed or it's going to be finished through the highs and the lows, the good and the bad. Paul didn't just say that if he begun a good work in me, he's going to perform it when everything's well. He didn't say as though God's going to bring this to fruition to where it needs to be because everything is just going to be a bed of roses. No. He's saying what he started, he will finish. And here's the amazing thing, even in our Christian lives, he'll use both the highs and the lows to finish it. He'll use both the good and the bad to finish it. Amen. And the, the mountains and the valleys, if you will. And so if God begins it and if God performs it along the way, that tells me then that should tell us he's going to use those bad circumstances of my life just as much as the good circumstances. And here's what I want us to realize today. What that means is this. God is not a fair weather God. God does not desert us when things look bad. It feels like that. I admit sometimes it feels like that, but he doesn't desert us when things look bad. As a matter of fact, on multiple occasions throughout God's word, and you'll see this oftentimes in the New Testament scripture, in the life of Jesus, he was found in the middle of the storm. He's found in the middle of the dilemma. He's found in the middle of some of the most gruesome tragedies of scripture. He's not a far off. He's right there in the middle of it all. Amen. The Bible says in Malachi 3 and verse number 3, And he, it's speaking of the Lord, and he shall set as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. God shall sit as a refiner and purifier of Silver. Now, whenever you're talking about the refinement of silver, you're talking about fire. You're talking about intense heat. The Bible says he's going to sit as the purifier and the refiner. What that means is this. He doesn't abandon us in the perfecting process. He doesn't abandon us in the perfect. He must sit at the fire. He must monitor the fire as the purifier and the refiner. He must increase it when it's necessary. He must watch the process of his work. The refiner must wait for the proper time. There's a proper time, a refiner of silver. He has to wait for the proper time to pour out the silver and separate the dross from it. He can't go off and lollygag here and there. He's got to be on the scene as it's going through the intense heat. To know the exact time when he's got to separate the silver from the dross. This is a hands-on procedure. So what I'm telling you is this. When the fire of life is turned up in your life. He's the refiner and the purifier of the silver. He's not afar off. 
But Sister Pat, he is quite near because he's got to stay around for the process. Know the exact time when to separate the silver from the dross. He's got a, it's a hands-on procedure. God's not far when the fire is burning. He's not at distance when trials are burning within our lives. And all of this that we go through, even the silver and the refiner, Paul in his own life, all these things, all of this is not purposeless. Something's being refined. Some, you know, sometimes we think we just go through what we go through. and it's, There is purpose. Purpose in the pain. Purpose in the tragedy. Amen. Something is being refined. Something is being purified. And in, in Malachi, he says this is so that the outcome is going to be offerings of righteousness so that all of these things will be able to give glory unto God as the refiner. Paul even said in his own life that with these things going on, he was going to be filled with fruits of righteousness again. And it was for the purpose that God would get the glory and God would get the praise. Mr. Silva says this. He said the basis for Paul's encouragement is not merely that things will turn out all right in spite of the problems, but that the problems themselves assist us in our Christian experience. It's not just that it's going to turn out all right in spite of this, well, this horrible problem. No, it's that God is using the problem as a tool. God is using the trial as a tool to bring about an outcome. Amen? Because I know I'm human, right? God, get me out of this. Huh? Stop it now. But if we understand that to be a tool, that God's trying to bring about a more favorable outcome for our lives. Then we're saying, Potter, apply the pressure where you need it. Because when it's said and done, I want to be a vessel of honor. Right? Unto the Lord. In verse 19, look what Paul says here in Philippians 1. For I know that this. It's important what that refers to. That's referring back to his imprisonment. That's referring back. To others that's wanting to add affliction to his life. That's here in Philippians 1. He says, for I know that this shall turn to my salvation. What? Yeah. Those, those things that we would term on humans, human standards as bad. This shall turn to my salvation or to my deliverance. Salvation. Salvation in scripture is a very elastic word. I know, of course, we've probably looked at this before. But salvation is an elastic word. Because whenever you were justified, right, you were looked at just as if you didn't sin. When you were justified, you were justified by being saved from sin's penalty in your life. When you're sanctified, which is a daily thing, you're sanctified by being saved from sin's power in your life. And yet whenever you are going to be glorified one of these days that we're all looking forward to, we will be saved in that moment from sin's presence someday in our lives. But Paul has already experienced salvation at the justification level. He has been saved from sin's penalty in his life. Uh, each day, the Apostle Paul and us, once we receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, each day, amen, there is a sanctification that's happening in our lives. And God uses all things, someone say all, God uses all things, that means good, bad. He uses all things that we experience that help in our sanctification process. Amen. The circumstances of life are the fires of the refiner. Amen. And so Paul doesn't simply tell us that these things will turn to his salvation, but he tells us how these things will turn to his salvation. This turning happens, he says, this happens through the prayers of other people for him. And he says the Spirit's help or the supply of the Spirit. So Paul was very confident of this, that his deliverance dependent upon the pairing of these two things. Other people's prayer for him and the aid and the help of the Spirit. Now remember, we looked earlier, Paul's, Paul's a praying man. You know, we looked at him as like the pastor of the Philippian church. He's been praying for the Philippians, but the Philippians have also been praying for Paul. And so he says, this thing turning, 
this, 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 these things of imprisonment, all this turning for my good, turning for my deliverance, is because people's been praying for me. And the Spirit has joined with them to help me. Scholar J. Moiter asserts this phrase of verse number 19, that it could easily be translated without injury. Your prayers and the consequent supply or help of the Spirit is what helped turn these things around. So there's something very vitally important here in this verse. We need the supply or the help of the Spirit. That goes without saying. We need the help or the supply of the Spirit. But this also, this also supports that we need help through prayers from each other. Oh, we cannot underestimate the value and the power, not just of our prayer, but of other people's prayer for us. For that matter, here in this verse, Paul links the supply of the Spirit. I like this. He links the supply of the Spirit to people's prayers for him. He links them together. You prayed and the supply of the Spirit come to bear. What's he saying? Because of your prayers. Huh? If Christ in his earthly ministry could send his word and heal them. Huh? You through your prayers can help with a sending and dispatching of the Spirit to come alongside someone and be an aid and a help to them. So it's vitally important, amen, for prayers for other people. Prayer still works, amen. It helps furnish the Spirit's supply where it's needed the most. Amen. It can help in some of the most despicable of situations, horde, amen, of outcomes. And it can work, as the apostle said, prayers and the aid of the Spirit can turn these events for my deliverance. So we say amen. Look this, if you will, 2 Corinthians 1 and verse number 8. Paul writing to the church at Corinth. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead. Who delivered us from so great a death? I've looked at this verse several times because it's great. It's deliverance in past present and future tense who delivered us from so great a death past tense and doth deliver present tense and whom we trust that he will yet deliver us future tense look at verse 11 ye also helping together by prayer look he's not just talking about what God is doing but he's talking about the aid that also comes in in addition to or alongside God moving is that you all have been praying he said, ye also helping together by prayer for us, for that the gift bestowed up on us by means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. The New Living Translation says it like this. And you, uh, verse 11, and you are helping us by praying for us. Uh, the American Standard says, you also joining in helping us through your prayers. The Amplified says, while you join in helping us by your prayers. God's Word says, in other translations, since you also joining to help us when you pray for us. You know what Paul's saying? He said, we're gonna, we've been delivered. We are going to be delivered. We will be delivered because God's Spirit is coming and you've been praying. When people pray, the Spirit is supplied. When people pray, the Spirit comes to bear and help. Oh, yes. Huh? When you think of it, whenever even Christ sent the word in New Testament Scripture, and, 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 and the man goes back to check on the servant that was sick. What does he ask? He says, what hour did he start feeling better? And he tells him what hour. And he says, in the selfsame hour, I knew that when the word was sent, right? Whenever someone stirred up the heavens, that he was healed in the selfsame hour. What are you saying? I'm saying prayer causes a dispatching of the spirit. There are times we got stories in this congregation. Someone could say, I tell you what, I had you on my mind at such and such time. And I begin to pray. And they say, well, in that moment, this and that was going to happen. But it turned around. Uh, God saved us from the accident. It was at that exact time that God put you on my mind. And I was praying what happened. There's a dispatching of the spirit somebody prayed and the link of prayer oh yes turn something around for deliverance cannot underestimate 
the power of prayer. And so when we consider the Apostle Paul, one may even begin to ask themselves how, how Paul could approach life as he has in this first chapter of Philippians. How in the world can he do this? And the only answer that we can give you is, is that Paul had a commitment, a commitment to the Lord, a commitment to the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection, the preaching, the propagating of that. And all of that, his commitment to those things helped shape then his responses in these less than stellar times of his life. He says, I will rejoice, I rejoice and I will rejoice. I rejoice and I will rejoice. Whenever I think of the Apostle Paul, and this is someone some of us know here, used to be a member of this church. When I think of Paul, it makes me think of, of Brother Bob Garrett, who has went on to be with the Lord when I think of the Apostle Paul. <clears throat> I remember whenever Brother Bob, I've been to the hospital for him on several occasions, but I remember arriving at the emergency room in Evansville one night after uh, he had been transferred from another hospital over in uh, Fairfield area because he had fallen and he had broke his neck. He fell and he broke his neck. Many of you know uh, that Brother Bob didn't have a voice box. He had to put his thumb there over the opening in his neck in order to have uh, some type of, of vocal speaking. And I remember getting to the hospital there in Evansville. I arrived a little bit before his wife did or any of his other family did. It was just me. And there he was in the ER in Evansville, downtown Deaconess, laying there. And I walked in, and as soon as I walked in, a big smile. Man's laying there with a broken neck. A big smile just came across his face. Face. There was another time he was very close to death. Death was nigh. Bishop and I actually went uh, to visit him. They had just switched rooms on him. And I remember very distinctly, Bishop, we walked into the room. And whenever he noticed us, he smiled. This guy is about ready to take the eternal trip. And yet when he noticed us, a smile came across his face. Because Bob proved, and what the Apostle Paul proves, is that we could demonstrate Proverbs 15.3 in our Christian lives. Proverbs 15.3 says this. This is in the Message Bible, Paraphrase Bible. It says, a cheerful heart brings a smile to your face. That's important, Sister Cox, because it doesn't say good circumstances. It didn't say the smile was connected to the circumstance. Or the smile was connected to the mode of life. No, it said the heart. The smile was connected to the condition of the heart. He said a cheerful heart can bring a smile to your face. So it's not the surroundings, it's not the circumstances, but it's the experience. Can I say it like this? It's the experience that we have with the Lord that influences the condition of our heart that can bring a smile across our face even in some bleak moments of life because it is connected to the condition of our heart. The apostle Paul knew, this is what he knew, and he says in Philippians 1, he knew to be with Christ, he said, was far better. That's his words. To, to be with Christ was far better. He said, but to remain on the earth, he said, that's needful for you Philippians. That's needful for you Philippians and others. And in reality, that's the death reality. Let's get real here for a moment. No one wants to talk about death, but let's do it. That's the death reality. That's the reason why it's hard for the living to let go of their dying family. Because to remain in the flesh, for them to remain here, that's more needful for you than it is for them. Mm -hmm. Paul says, for me to stay, that's... That's needful for you, but it's far better, he says, just to go and to be with Christ. Staying doesn't benefit them as much as it benefits you. To die is to depart, of course, and to depart as a Christian. I mark that. To depart as a Christian, according to the Apostle Paul, is to be with Christ. He says to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5 and 8, he says, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body, and to be present with the Lord. And so we pawn the phrase from the scripture, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For some, life lived on this earth is the best there is. You hearing me? Life lived on this earth is the capstone of life for some. 
but not for the people like the Apostle Paul and the Bob Garrett's in life. Or can I hopefully say not for the people that are like us? Paul says death is far better. Not only we have confidence in Scripture, not only do we have hope in this life, but we have hope in the life to come. For us to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Oh, Brother McGee, got dies gain. What, what do we gain? I'll tell you this, and this is the best way that I can explain it. I'll tell you what we gain by telling you what we lose. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are past away. Not to mention eternity with the Lord. I'll tell you what we gain by telling you what we lose. To lie, to Paul, life is Christ because his relationship, watch this, because his relationship with Christ is so close and so dear that he derives the very meaning for his life from Christ. Life is Christ to Paul. Life isn't his job. Hear me? Not being a tent maker. Life is not the money or the income that comes in for him. Life is not his family. The relationship he has with the Lord, that's life. So to live is Christ because that relationship is so near and so dear unto him. Let me say this this morning. If you live, if you live, amen, for you, if to live is money, then to die is going to be a loss for you. If for you to live is self, then to die is going to be a loss for you. If to, if you to live is ambition, then to die is going to be a loss for you. If for you to live is sin, then to die is going to be a loss for you. But if for you to live is Christ, then to die is going to be nothing but gain. That's a reason to rejoice. It's a reason to rejoice. Paul was confident about how he was living that life. He was confident how, though his life culminating in death, that he was still going to be with Christ at death. However, equally important to the apostle Paul was his opportunity, as we see in Philippians, to testify about the Lord Jesus Christ to others. Might I say even his accusers as he was making his approach to his final day upon the earth. For in other words, if Paul was alive, he was going to make it his, his mission to help others adopt the die is gain philosophy before they left their lives. Made it his mission. The Bible says, look at Philippians 1.27. Let's go a little further here today. Only let your conversation, we'll spend a little time here. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. That whether I come, Paul says, and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you, of salvation and that of God. For unto you is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. He says, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. The New Living Translation translates that phrase. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. The Amplified interprets Lead your lives in a manner that will be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Again, we can't misinterpret the word conversation here. It's used in different places throughout the letters in the New Testament, the word conversation. But where it is used, the word conversation is not solely talking about talking or communication. When it speaks about conversation, it's talking about lifestyle. It's talking about our conduct. It's talking about our citizenship and how we order our lives as citizens of a country beyond this one. Amen. Conversation, the word conversation comes from a word meaning city. Or it refers to the city-states to which inhabitants gave their allegiance. In essence, uh, Philippi, whom Paul 
founded this church, Philippi, was a a city-state of Rome. It was a Roman colony. And as a result of that, it adopted many of the Roman ways, although it was not in that location since it was connected to city-state. They adopted many of the Roman ways in the city of Philippi. And so this word conversation comes from this connection. It also comes from a verb that means a citizen. So what it comes to bear, meaning city and citizen, it implies that one's conduct brings honor to the political body to which it belongs to. And so they live in Philippi, but they honor all the ways of Rome. They act as though they are citizens of Rome, though they live in Philippi. And so since Philippi was a Roman colony, matter of fact, many sometimes in history it's even called a little Rome, the citizens gave their allegiance to Rome. They gave their allegiance to the emperor of Rome, all of those of Philippi. As a matter of fact, the citizens of Philippi adopted the Roman dress, this is history. They, ad- they adopted the Roman dress. They adopted Roman names. All right. Because they're in Philippi. But their citizenship is connected to Rome. They adopted the Roman dress, the Roman names. They even spoke the official language of Rome. Which was Latin of that day. And so such citizens of Philippi, where Rome is their connection... Such citizens then would devote their skills, their talents, their energies, etc. First and foremost to the interest of Rome. Since they were part of a Roman colony, even Philippi adopted the architecture of its mother city, Rome. The city's religious life was centered on the worship of the emperor. And as a little side note, what's interesting, uh, many times they would call the Caesars of Rome in that day, they would call them Lord and Savior. But you'll see all throughout the book of Philippians over and over again that the Apostle Paul are using the titles of Lord and Savior, amen, to describe the Lord Jesus Christ or our Savior Jesus Christ because he's trying to shift the Philippians from giving honor to the Lord and Savior of Rome to the Lord and Savior of another country amen and so here it is just as the philippians would typically conduct themselves after the place that they were a colony of after rome paul was implying then through this language only let your conversation be as cometh the gospel of christ he's implying to them that as christians they conduct themselves as citizens of a place that they were a colony of as well heaven Huh? He said, you're in Philippi, but you're going to act like Rome because you're a colony of them. He says, but I'm telling you as a Christian that you're here in earth, but you're really just a colony of heaven. And you need to conduct your life in such a way as being a citizen of that country. What did that mean then? Amen. That they were a church in Philippi that belonged, if you will, to the colony or the country of heaven. If they followed the same dynamics then, Philippi adopted Rome's architecture, Rome's dress, Rome's language. Rome's name, then the Apostle Paul is telling the church of Philippi, then you need to conduct yourself, have conversation. You need to live your lives as citizens of heaven. Adopt heaven's language. Adopt heaven's dress. Adopt heaven's name. Give your allegiance, your energies, your talents, your skills, and your abilities. First and foremost, give it into heaven. sensible to think if you would want to and this is Bible it's sensible to think that we should be at enmity as that's a biblical word with the world since the Bible says that the world is at enmity with God Hmm? the Bible says in James 4 4 ye adulterers and adulteresses Know ye not that the friendship, the Greek word there means fondness, of the world is enmity, the Greek word there is hatred or an adversary, with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. The old manuscripts from which King James Version and other Bibles have been translated from the old manuscripts of the Greek The word adulterers is not even found there. Only the feminine word adulteresses 
is used. But it's applied to both men and women. We ask ourselves the question, why? Because James, when he's talking about adulterers and adulteresses here in James 4, is not talking about a physical act of adultery, but a spiritual act of adultery. How so? In the Old Testament, Old Testament Israel was denoted as God's wife. And when she was unfaithful to God, she was considered an adulteress. The church is always depicted in the feminine, female gender. The old manuscripts didn't even have the male adulterer part, but just adulterous because he's not talking about real physical thing. He's talking about God's church being unfaithful. God's church being unfaithful to him. All right? And so whenever the church or whenever Old Testament Israel left God for other things, for other gods, for idols, she committed adultery in a spiritual sense against God. She was unfaithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. She was unfaithful to that one true God. Jeremiah 3 and verse number 20 says it like this in Jeremiah 3.20. He says, surely as a wife treacherously departed from her husband, this is the Lord speaking to Israel, so have ye dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. He said, you, 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 you've departed from me as your husband. You are my wife. You're my bride. You've departed from me, and you've dealt treacherously, amen, from me. The traditional question. What's the traditional question? I say traditional because it doesn't happen necessarily in every wedding anymore. But of the bride and groom is this. Will you forsake all others? That's the question. Will you forsake all others and keep only him or her as long as you both shall live? That's the question. Will you forsake all others? What's that mean? I don't have a girlfriend on the side. Huh? I don't have a mistress. She's the one and only. Or he is the one and only. Amen. And so when we look then at these Greek meanings of, of friendship and enmity that is stated above, listen, we, we think of friendship on a certain level, but the Greek interpretation of the word friendship, the meaning is fondness. I'd be fond of somebody in this natural life without being friends with them. It's kind of like almost to a lesser degree of friendship in my human understanding. You understand what I'm saying? You say, well, I'm not a friend of the world. Yeah, but are you fond of the world? Oh, God, help me. We've not went on a date. That's all right, but are you fond of it? Is it appealing to you? Well, spirit, some, someone from distant land prayed that the Spirit would come along and help and supply right now. Amen. Amen. Fond. Fondness of the world is enmity. It's hatred. It's posing yourself as an adversary to the Lord. I'm not wife. Well, that's true. But if you start at an infant relationship, you're going to, you know, your fiance before you're a wife or husband, and you're a friend before that, and then before that, you might just be friends. You understand there's a progression, right, in relationship. Fondness has the potential to lead to marriage. Amen. Paul says, look now, there, this is the NIV here of, of this same phrase, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, of course Paul's alluding to, whether life or death, whatever happens, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever, regardless of what happened, regardless of what happened to Paul, he wanted the Philippian church to have a lifestyle, a conduct, a citizenship, Reflective of the gospel, reflective of the word of God, regardless of what happened to him. In other words, he didn't want them to live their lives on the straight and narrow just because they had an observer and an overseer in their life. That preached that, taught that, propagated that. Why would he say that? Well, we have enough evidence even from Old Testament scripture that sometimes people only ordered their lives appropriately not for God, not for the word, but because of other people they had in their life. 
This is what I mean. Second Chronicles 24 and verse number 2. And let me read a couple other verses. We'll skip down from there. But Second Chronicles, this is not Corinthians, Chronicles. Second Chronicles 24 and 2. The Bible says, and Joash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada, the priest. Now let's skip down to verse number 17. Now after the death of Jehoiada came the princes of Judah and made obeisance or bowed down to the king. Then the king hearkened unto them. This is Joash. And they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served groves and idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this their trespass. You know what the scriptures are laying here, relaying? When the priest was alive, Joash did right in the sight of the Lord. But when the priest died, he was swayed by the princes of Judah, and they also come to idolatries, and they left the house of God. Priest in life. They know I'm going to do this. Priest is looking. Priest is watching. But you know, when the priest is dead, God's still watching. Whenever I'm pushing up tulips in the graveyard someday, God's still watching. And the account ultimately is given to him. Not to me. Not to Bishop. Not to anybody else that you respect or revere in your life. So Paul's saying, whether I'm absent or present, he said, I pray that you live your life and conduct yourself in a way. Huh? And that's life and death. But let's just consider about when people like that are around or not around in your daily living. When I'm at church or not at church, I pray that you conduct your life and be citizens according to the Gospel. Well, someone say amen. Amen. Paul didn't want the Philippians to only be citizens of heaven when in church or around the churchy environments. He wanted them to be true through and through. He didn't want them to be a chameleon that changed according to their surroundings. Amen. He wanted to hear... He says, even if I'm absent, he said, I want to hear of your affairs. I want to hear that you stood fast. And I want to hear that you strove together for the gospel. He said, I want to hear that you stood, even if I'm not there, I want word to get back to me that you stood fast. You know, one of the greatest testaments for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that Daniel was not present Whenever they were tempted to bow to the golden idol of Daniel chapter number 3. And without their quote unquote man of God present, they stood the test of time. They did not bow and said, we are not careful to answer you, O king. Huh? Whether he is present or gone, they stood fast. Amen. Stood fast. The phrase stand fast is translated from a word that is used of a soldier who defends his position at all costs, even, watch this, to the point of sacrificing his life. It's holding fast regardless of personal cost. Let me put it like this. It's sacrificing your life. I'm not talking about necessarily dying, but I'm talking about sacrificing your life, your wants, your desires, the things that appeal to you for his desires, his wants, his life. What's the scripture say? If you save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for him, you're going to find it. Amen. He says, I want, you to, I want to hear that you stood fast and that you strove or that you're striving together for the faith. Now listen, let's, let's really cut this right. Rightly divide the word. He didn't say, he didn't say, I want you to strive together or strive against one another. All right, we, we don't or should we not, we should not strive against one another, but we should strive together, which lends to a sense of unity. We're not an island doing this alone. We're linked arm in arm, and we are striving together. We can work, brothers and sisters, one with another against a common foe uh-huh, or for a common goal or cause. We can strive together. Huh? Right? 
Because a, 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 a three-fold cord is not quickly broken. The Bible says in Hebrews 10 and verse 23, speaking about striving together or putting an effort, a sense of unity together, he admonishes us in verse 23 of Hebrews 10, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Sometimes we need the aid of other people to help us to hold and stand fast. You know, in, whenever the Bible speaks and you read in Ephesians 6 about, uh, you know, having put on the whole armor of God, stand therefore. Having done all to stand, stand. You know, the, and we, we, we talked about the armor of God several times, but the boots or the cleats, if you want to call them, of the soldiers, that they had spikes on the end of them. If you think of cleats like in football or like for golf and the little needles, that was on, that type of thing was on the bottom of the soldiers' boots, so that they could stand. They could be pressed against and their feet wouldn't slip easily because that would penetrate in the ground. Well, that's one thing for me to have that, but me to have two other people on either side of me linked arm to arm with shields and they're pushing. They're not just trying to push Paul McGee. Are you hearing what I'm telling you right now? They're not just pushing against what's I got planted in the soil, but when I'm linked with my brothers and sisters and we're striving together, when they push me, they're trying to push the whole line. Amen. It's, this is not me in isolation. This is, this is them against us. Huh? This is the foe against us. Look now, he said, hope that's the profession of our faith. Verse 23, Hebrews 10, 23. Without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Little parenthetical phrase there. God is faithful. He's faithful that promise. And let us consider one another to provoke. That's a strong word. We want to go and the epistle where it says, provoke not your children to anger. Well, here's what you should do. You should provoke each other unto love and to good works. What is that? That's striving together. That's striving together. Verse 25, popular verse. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. As the manner of some is, but look, exhorting one another. What is that? That's striving together. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. You know what that tells me, Bishop? If we're ever going to strive together and should get it right, we need to be getting it right right now. As the, as, as the coming of the Lord is drawing near, we need to link arms more than ever before. We need to stand fast more than ever before. We need to strive together more than ever before. We need to conduct as citizens of another country more than ever before. Exhort one another, provoke one another to love and good works. Amen. Verse 28, New Living Translation says, Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. To have persecution, and listen, persecution is vastly different in our country, third world countries, and other places beyond the United States. We don't even have it bad. But to have persecution, to have adversaries, Paul's saying is in essence a token of our salvation. It's a token of our deliverance. Because we've been given, we've been given a reward. We've been given a, a, a reward, both the privilege of, and this is in the verse there, verse number 28. We've been given this, this privilege, in verse number 29 rather, we've been given this privilege or reward of both believing and suffering for Christ's sake. It's evident of this token of salvation of God. For unto you, verse 29, for unto you it is given in behalf of Christ, this token, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. He said, we've been given both of these things. Yea, me, the ability to believe and the ability to suffer. What good is this? Paul, in his writing to Timothy, said, 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 
As a matter of fact, in line with uh, Saul, who became Paul, in line with his conversion that we read of in Acts chapter number 8 and 9, whenever the Lord sent Ananias to Saul to lay hands on him and say, my brother Saul, even the Lord Jesus has sent me unto thee. And you're going to be uh, one that's going to speak among kings and among the Gentiles. He also said this, Ananias said, this is at Paul's conversion, and you are going to suffer for his name. Paul, in this moment of his conversion, has the ability to believe, but also has the forecast of suffering. And both are a token. Both are a token of the salvation or the deliverance of the Lord. How in the world, just like we said from the beginning, you can stand with me, just like we said from the beginning, because God can use suffering as a tool. He can use persecution as a tool. He can use any dismal circumstance as in our life as a tool. Use it all as a tool to bring about what needs to be brought about in our lives. And we can rejoice. Paul, the scripture says later in Philippians, we'll get to it in weeks to come. But he will say that he desired to know the Lord on two levels. He says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. And we're like, yes, power of resurrection, power, resurrection, power. Yeah, I'm a Christian, resurrection, power. (laughs) On two levels, Paul said. The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. It's on two levels. Why, Paul? Because both of these aspects, both of these aspects is really wherein the power of the gospel is really found. Not just in the resurrection, but in the suffering. And if it's found for him, then I... Is the servant any greater than his master? Then both of these things, resurrection power, suffering, both of these things are going to come to bear on my life. And he wanted the Philippian church to know, Philippian church, you've suffered even some similar things like I have suffered. Paul said in the very last verse, you suffered some similar things like I have suffered. But all of us, we all need to remember that God has the ability of using these things, the the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of the suffering. He can use all these things to turn, to turn this to your deliverance, to turn this to ultimately to your salvation in the Lord. And that is a great reason to rejoice. In suffering, yes. In the power of his resurrection, yes. But in all things. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Can we bow our heads here this morning? Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.